Hello everyone, Namaste. Welcome to another edition of the Bharat Vartha Weekly. I'm Roshan Karyapa. I have with me Abhishek Paul and Nirav Kanodra to run you through the news and events of the week that was. It was a pretty interesting week, I should say. Uh, there was an Economist article begrudgingly praising uh, Prime Minister Modi for once. India has decided to ban wheat exports, uh, right? Uh, quite different from what uh, our view was earlier. Uh, and there was also an important Supreme Court judgment on the Gyanwapi mosque. Uh, so all this and more in this edition of the Bharatvartha Weekly. So before we run you through the news and events of the week, a look back at some of the episodes we produced uh, last week. Uh, we had a very interesting uh, episode on the Indian space exploration efforts. Uh, so we had scientists uh, Alok and Kaushik talking about various things like the Gaganyan and uh, you know colonizing Mars and making bricks out of <laughs> lunar and Martian soil and so on and so forth. A fascinating episode uh, gives you some insights into what What's actually happening on that realm? I would definitely encourage everyone to check that out. We had another wonderful episode, uh, very ably marshaled by uh, Nirav Kanodra on uh, India's poverty scale. So this was based on uh, uh, the paper that uh, Karan Basin, Dr. Surjit uh, Bala and uh, Dr. Arvind Virmani had authored, uh, right? Uh, Nirav, uh, that was a really nice episode. Actually, so one thing was the paper was like a shedding light. So this was like nice research shedding light on what's actually happening on the ground and uh, taking into account. So a lot of the other studies are done from like a Western lens and uh, not incorporating what other programs or what actual like in-kind subsidies are given to people and uh, actually looking at the efficacy of the subsidies reaching to the final mile, right? So I think obviously uh, given not a lot of people actually read economic papers uh, which are published in journals, I think it's a great opportunity like for us at Bharat Vartha to try and bring it to the common audience, right? So I think it was, I actually enjoyed that. I was actually heartened by the results and like the whole conversation that yes, India has a lot of poverty, but the extreme poverty or extreme hunger has been warded off because of uh, in-kind uh, subsidies which were given and the implementation was quite efficient. After that, I think on Twitter, I got a lot of hate as well uh, because people are going through their preconceived notions. So I think Ashish Chandorkar also told people to either read the paper or to like go through the podcast, yeah. listen to the podcast and see that what we are actually speaking about, right? So yes, but I think exactly that is why I actually feel happy that we are trying and like conveying this message to the masses. So I felt it was a great opportunity for me as well. And I definitely yeah. learned a lot. No, Dr. Balla also said the same thing. Right. I mean, people in India can never believe that poverty has actually reduced. Right. And, and you know, I mean, this speaks for all of us. I think we kind of see it in our uh, daily lives as well. Right. It's very apparent. Uh, but things are improving. And uh, definitely, you know, it was heartening to see that, you know, there, there's, there's optimism on that front, uh, you know, and things have changed over the last 10, uh, 10 years or so. Um, all right. Uh, moving on to the news this week. An economist article on Prime Minister Modi has actually praised him for once, speaking about advancements such as uh, better GDP growth numbers, infrastructure projects, demonetization, and the India stack. The article praises the Prime Minister's performance when it comes to policymaking. It also speaks about India's strengths such as technology services and IT industry, along with the need to catalyze manufacturing. Uh, they also remarked on how uh, the Modi government is more consistent and less corrupt than the previous ones. Uh, the article ends with a statement that hopes that Prime Minister Modi's, to quote, divisive politics will not affect India's economic modernization and advancements. Well, Nirav, uh, this is begrudging pay praise uh, from The Economist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you make of it? Okay, so I think uh, one thing is uh, The Economist 
does this whole job where they write four or five positive things and then they end it in like a leave a bad taste towards the end in the mouth right like so i think that's that, that's not like a really done thing one thing is yes what has happened is effectively what economists has done is they've thrown the towel that earlier they were saying that oh modi's divisive politics will bring india's economy to a halt oh the pandemic is going to crash india's economy etc and they've been consistently negative about india the proof of the pudding is eating it so like when you actually see uh, that actual numbers are improving yes so india as i said in the previous podcast about poverty as well india continues to be a poor country right it's it's going to from a poor economy to a lower middle income economy right uh, there is a transition i think one a few things which they really uh, have pointed out well so they've highlighted uh, india's strengths as well as vulnerabilities areas of concern uh, they have highlighted quicker decision making and going for the second best approach which leads to quicker action instead of waiting to implement the perfect scheme right so don't let the best be enemy of good because if you can get it done and get it rolling faster mm-hmm. uh, you have seen that in all the kind of schemes the ujwala scheme on lighting or like building toilets etc it's not about getting it perfect it's about getting it reasonably right and getting it getting there faster right so i think uh, gets the wheels moving absolutely that's a great thing they've highlighted the strength of india's technology sector which is done very well uh, they've highlighted the pli schemes that india is uh, putting on and the world is kind of diversifying away from china so i don't know what has caused a change of heart for the economist as much as i would like to say that everybody is editorially independent uh, sometimes you also uh, cater to your sponsors and uh, is it that or is it are they looking at a wider market for indian readers uh, for their magazine we don't know uh, maybe it's all but you can clearly see that they've had a change in tack one thing i did not like about the thing is they have said is undemocratic policies i thought like it is the most democratic uh, he has been in winning elections democratically no one has said that these elections have any sort of like malpractice right not just the general elections a lot of state elections uh, bjp has lost a lot of state elections as well has won some state elections right so in india the elections are quite what you would call as fair and transparent right so uh, that was like a left handed compliment or whatever it was and towards the end they talk about like his divisive policies now that is looking at it on a very biased lens i think like all of these uh, if if there is growth there is growth for all if there is welfare there is welfare for all nobody is being discriminated against i think again they are like maybe looking at uh, things from their biased angle they have dropped one biased lens uh, maybe on one eye on the economy front but on the other front they still have some bias but anyways i think we do not need actual external validation so as much as uh, modi is whatever he is irrespective of what economist says or what wall street journal says or whatever right we do not need external validation but uh, it's a heartening sign that even your worst critics do find something positive to say about it that's what it is and i hope like like the government continues with this momentum right yeah. uh, we have a long way to go a few things have done have been done right a few things they haven't been able to achieve but again they've been democratic like in an autocracy the farm laws reforms would have been passed through and not rolled back with an iron hand here you saw that the public opinion was against it so then that was never rolled back right so that is how a democratic system works and hopefully we get more and more of such reforms and we continue the growth momentum yeah no i mean uh, let me also clarify that we're discussing this topic more for shock value than for uh, any importance <laughs> uh, as such i i think it's fascinating because they probably have hit the ceiling in terms of baiting india haters as 
as much right uh, i i think there's only a certain uh, you know number of people who would actually cater to the economist or the the new york times kind of an audience and we we recently saw i mean last week as well netflix had this memo internal memo saying that hey i mean if you are you know ultra woke or if you differ with uh, you know certain views of people i mean that's good for you but separate the personal and the professional right i mean i think news organizations are starting to realize uh, i would say and I, and i actually see see a bit of a course correction because i i think some of these organizations also i mean this is starting to hit their revenue and stuff right so so yeah i mean i think this is a useful change abhishek equally surprised yeah i mean <laughs> a bit of a surprise but i think these guys have put in uh, enough caveats as well so it's like so earlier they were saying you know india is not doing well uh, because of the new government or whatever now they are saying india will do well but maybe they will not do well because of this government so that's how the headline also goes right so it's like india is destined to do well but will modi screw it up like that like that's their sort of overall direction at least some good thing out of it is they have sort of done a decent job of explaining the what we have been calling modi nomics right including yeah. talking about india's tax jam trinity aadhar all those kind of things so at least that's uh, something which is very rarely brought up in the western media so on that front at least uh, i think more re- readers outside india will probably get an appreciation of what is happening in india yeah uh, no i mean i go back to what harsh uh, madhusudan mentioned on the podcast uh, sometime back right i mean that you know this decade the 2020s uh, is india's decade and we will grow the the actual milestones may be off one or two years here or there the numbers may be off you know few billion dollars here or there right but uh, growth is inevitable and however imperfectly we move towards it we will definitely grow for people who are listening do definitely check out episode 115 uh, of bharat vartha where we uh, spoke about modi nomics with harsh gupta uh, it's a fascinating overview on everything that the government is doing on the economy front uh, in fact i mean we will also be doing an episode uh, shortly with harsh uh, you know just discussing the current uh, state of the economy the markets and so on and so forth uh, so that should be interesting as well all right uh, moving on to politics uh, ahead of assembly polls in the state uh, mr biplab kumar deb uh, who was a trip Uh, chief minister has resigned mr deb stepped down from his position after meeting bjp president uh, jp nadda and union home minister amit shah during his recent trip to new delhi the reason given by mr deb was that the party wished to give him organizational responsibilities as it wanted a responsible organizer to take charge of the state's affairs he will be replaced by dr manik saha Uh, after being named the next chief minister of the state dr saha told reporters that he was a common worker of the party and will continue to be so uh, abhishek again i think pretty surprising right i mean a lot of people didn't really expect this yeah so tripura is anyway a very small state which often does not get too much attention so yeah it's been an interesting journey for the bjp and biplab dev uh, in tripura as the cm to sort of summarize i think uh, bjp made some stunning gains in the last few years to sort of suddenly come into power after a very long lasting cpm government right which was there for decades it came you know obviously with uh, some good groundwork done in the region but also with the popularity of the prime minister right and biplab dev was looked at as someone who was hand picked by the top uh, leadership of the bjp 
so in his time like it's been a sort of a mixed bag right so earlier on in his tenure he was in the news for all sorts of wrong reasons where he would make all sorts of outrageous and often unintentionally funny statements uh, but over time he sort of you know curbed that instinct of his and you know he's done well in terms of improving the economy in terms of trading trade of goods with outside states he's done good job in terms of general law and order situation etc but uh, there were also a lot of allegations of you know some sort of charges brought to against his government by his political opponents like the cpm congress and now quite uh, becoming tmc which is now becoming quite strong there it's the charges were sort of similar to what the tmc government faces in bengal right so it's similar sort of politics is often quite violent uh, there right and so just like tmc is accused of violence and intimidation in bengal i think uh, the bjp was facing some sort of similar allegations there right in T- uh, in tripura so net net i think somewhat similar to what the bjp did in uttarakhand right where they are trying to bring a new face uh, with about uh, one year to go before the next elections so it will be interesting to see as i said right like tripura the growth has been like quite sudden and swift for the bjp so obviously they have brought in people from other parties as well and the, and the new cm is actually a veteran congress person in some ways like he was uh, with the congress till 2016 before he switched to the bjp and he became the bjp uh, state chief in 2018 i think the bjp state unit is quite rift with factionalism right now there so if you read media reports about this resignation like there was a lot of protests and people unhappy with the change as well so it will be interesting to see how it pans out i think uh, biplab dev has spoken that he will now and i think it's confirmed that he will now become the state party chief so essentially him and manik sir dr manik sir are basically switching positions the earlier party chief is becoming the cm and vice versa right so he said that you know the organization needs to be strengthened before the uh, next year's elections and he will be working for that so interesting to see uh, whether this sort of move uh, works for the bjp or not but one thing is for sure i think that tmc has sort of grown its influence quite a lot uh, in tripura and i think they will also be a contender for next year's uh, election all right moving on to some economic news uh, wheat exports have been banned due to a surge in prices uh, india has banned wheat exports with immediate effect as part of its steps to control the spike in prices at home only export shipments for which letters of credit have been issued on or before yesterday's notification will be allowed the government said besides the government will allow exports on requests from other countries the no- the notification issued by uh, the directorate general of foreign trade dgft uh, says Uh, global buyers had been back here in india the world's second largest wheat producer after china uh, for supplies after exports uh, from the black sea region dropped since russia's invasion of ukraine in late february neither of this is like a flip flop right i mean uh, uh, you know last week uh, the other week before i mean we had made state- statements that you know we will export a huge quantity and so on right and and now we have this is this a you know miscalculation on the uh, you know forecast uh, you know what is happening here so i think see there are a couple of things so first is 
what had happened is that india kind of always focuses or the mindset of all our policy making uh, since the 60s is uh, we are short of food so one is we don't allow and second is we need to protect our agricultural sector so we didn't allow a lot of exports or did we import especially like wheat and rice is the uh, cereal staples uh, so the main reason was that we wanted to grow enough to feed ourselves now we are already growing more than enough to feed ourselves the fci food stocks are quite high and we thought that this would be a good opportunity to export uh, some of indian wheat but what has happened is that the uh, wholesale and retail prices in india have risen and because if you have an opportunity to export at a price which is higher than uh, what your local market price is the worry is that you might end up diverting a lot of wheat abroad right so then we might have shortages and further price rises here so when you are in a closed economy uh, if you actually see the msp price for wheat is 20 rupees a kilo and uh, the wholesale price is about 25000 rupees a ton or so 25 rupees a kilo which at the retail probably it reaches 30 rupees uh, this till like last year was 20 rupees a kilo was higher than the price of wheat in europe right because ukraine was growing enough there's a lot of wheat it did not make sense for india to export wheat to egypt for example now what has happened is that those ports of uh, odessa mariupol etc are stopped and so they have to either take a land based route or to go to egypt it can't really go there so exporting to europe is still going on through road so those are blocked global prices of wheat have doubled and now they are higher than our called the retail price that a consumer pays not at the pds shop but like at a at a private level so the main worry here is that if we are allowed to export then people would export and uh, this would raise our retail prices a lot uh, thing number 2 is the consumer price inflation came out at 7.8% which is outside the band which is 2 to 6% so 4% plus minus 2 is kind of what the target rbi has uh, in india food prices consist of 50% of the cpi basket uh, in because given it's a, a poor country or a lower middle income country bulk of like expenses for an average of average indian is food so i think this is your main concern is you want to ensure that there is enough food for all domestically if we have surplus we will export i think with egypt some contracts are signed so those will go through what they don't want or if certain countries do request to india directly those will be taken up on a case by case basis but what they don't want is uh, like some people who opportunistically uh, use this opportunity and divert food away from india and uh, this uh, leads to a price rise right so i think see uh, you have to obviously elected leaders their first priority is their constituents there are more consumers of food than private trading companies which could profit from it right so i think it's a decision on a balance uh, people did not expect food prices to rise so much right earlier it was just a small supply shock but uh, there is a shortage of ships there is a shortage of container ships etc uh, there are a lot of things going on so i think it's a decision you know when the facts change you have to change your mind yeah uh, so it is a decision the government is tied up with a certain set of constraints and yeah. as expected they are putting indians first so there is a lot of criticism by the west that how can india be so uh, uh, irresponsible or banning exports when other countries are uh, short of it right but india has faced like uh, hunger previously and only when things went to like a really bad level did we actually get foreign aid right so i think 
this is a pragmatic decision or uh, maybe it will be reviewed and one last thing uh, what has happened is we've had a very big heat wave right in north india and uh, this might lead to a lower crop output so i think the rabi crop will be harvested sometime just before the monsoons uh, we will have an idea about how much were the yields did they fall or no but there are some estimates that yields might fall 10% right so these are the new things which have come to light and uh, because of that uh, they have decided to uh, do this uh, frankly india is not alone indonesia has banned uh, banned export of palm oil right, right. so every country is working in its own interests when things are under stress you would see these things happen when everything is normal everything is fine hopefully we can resume exports and uh, there is a new uh, export revenue or a new uh, source of revenue for farmers right so hopefully that is there uh, one thing i would like to remind uh, people that a uh, lot of farmers were protesting that oh that msp might be removed or msp should be maintained that was when market prices were lower than the msp now today market prices are higher than the msp but farmers are forced to sell at the mandis yeah right at at that particular price so uh, you can't have it both ways and uh, so yeah uh, maybe all these things uh, these kind of shocks will make people realize uh, that things need to open up a bit more but yeah i think it is it is a decision which has been made uh, looking at uh, what kind of a situation is there domestically yeah no you have to be pragmatic about these things right i mean when facts change you have to change perspectives you can't be beholden to certain statements uh, that you made uh, right so all right moving on uh, the supreme court declined to pass an order on the requested stay of inspection of the gyanwapi mosque uh, the bench headed by chief justice of india nv ramana uh, said that it would decide on this after going through the files a senior adv- advocate huzaifa ahmedi argued that this is a mosque for time immemorial uh, earlier the court had appointed an advocate commissioner to carry out an inspection of the mashringar gauri sthal at the disputed site and directed him to to court prepare videography of the action uh, this was then challenged by the mosque committee and the petition was dismissed uh, on thursday the court ordered resumption of the video survey due to be submitted on may 17th um abhishek this i mean again there's a lot of controversy around this um you know what do you make of this yeah so it's a very old uh, yeah. sort of dispute right starting uh with the legal sort of proceeding starting from 1991 uh, where you know time to time various uh, hindu groups have uh, been petitioning courts to allow uh, you know inspections etc to establish that you know uh, at least part of the mosque has been uh, built on you know existing or pre existing hindu temples and uh, i think the current uh, demand was for you know allowing certain uh, hindu rituals to take place on some of the disputed sites right so the local uh, courts in varanasi had given the go ahead uh, for these uh, videographic surveys to happen uh, and uh, the mosque committee had basically um, approached the supreme court recently right to for a stay of these uh, surveys so i think the it came up before the chief justice of india and he basically said that he does not have the facts of the case to uh, give a ruling or anything right now either way uh, 
and he's basically listed the case uh, in front of the bench of uh, Justice Chandrachud going forward. Uh, but since he did not outright dismiss, uh, you know, what came in front of him, the plea uh, by the Moss Committee, therefore the surveys are continuing on the ground. So basically that's the update. I think uh, post that, I guess what will happen is that the surveys will probably get finished and uh, whatever comes out of it will get placed in front of uh, the evidence will get placed in front of the court in Varanasi. Meanwhile, uh, the Supreme Court will probably look at it more from a matter of principle, right? Whether at all, what what is to be done in a case like this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be uh, something. I mean, people are uh, skeptical that you know it might set a. Uh, precedence for uh, things going forward. I think that is where a lot of the controversy lies. Um, moving on, a blaze at a building in Manka, Delhi, claimed the lives of 27 people. Uh, fire engulfed a three-story building near the Manka uh, metro station. Uh, the fire started at around 4.30 p.m., probably because of an electrical short circuit on the first floor. It then spread, spread to the other floors of the building, causing a devastating blaze. Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced an ex-Gratia assistance of Rs 2 lakh each to the next of kin of those who were killed and Rs 50,000 to those injured. Um, investigations have found that the building was ill-equipped to handle a fire, did not have an NOC certificate or sanctioned building plan and was built on a plot of land marked for residential use. Delhi Chief Minister Arvind Kejriwal visited the spot on Saturday morning with uh, Deputy Chief Minister Manish Sisodia and said that those found responsible for this tragedy would not be spared. Um, well, this is pretty tragic. Um, kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, some of the incidents uh, that would happen during the, the 90s, right? I mean, it's, it's been quite a, quite a while since at least I uh, have heard or, uh, you know, heard of something like this. Um, yeah. What do you think, Nero? Also, I think, see, a couple of things, right? So one is, like, this is, like the sad state of like urban governance bodies, the you know the public works department or the municipal corporations, which kind of give all these uh, NOCs. So one is India does have a code for uh, you know like fire and safety. Uh, it does have a code that what buildings can be residential, what can be commercial, how many people per floor. Uh, here, if they had like say two set of staircases, uh, if they had uh, the kind of like a lot of these electrical short circuits happen when there is an overload of uh, electrical power being drawn from uh, one source, right? So uh, if those kind of like safety uh, things had been taken into account, uh, then there would not be such an issue. A lot of these uh, builders, so one is obviously uh, the construction was like in a place where it should have been two floors, it was actually four floors. It was a commercial establishment. It had too many people working in there. It had a single one narrow staircase. So in such kind of uh, commercial building, you should have like two separate staircases so that if there's one which is uh, blocked, the other one can be used, right? And sometimes you also have a fire safety door with like kind of which can lock out like a steel door. So there is a safety code. What happens is uh, sadly, uh, and thankfully fewer of these are happening right now, is uh, this is I'm saying like colloquially that when... Uh, to give approvals, a lot of bribes need to be given, but the uh, the person sanctioning or giving an NOC 
uh, is taking a bribe, they cannot even go back and say that, hey, this does not conform to the building code, right? Or people kind of put a shut eye and there is a bribe given that even if without an NOC, a building is allowed to operate, right? And uh, uh, without an occupation certificate, right? Uh, then because you are taking a bribe, you cannot really enforce the uh, standards. So I think this needs a rethink. This needs a rethink through the system. Uh, it's a good thing that the chief minister has said that, uh, and like there has to be learning from this, that probably there are a lot of buildings. Even in Mumbai, like a few years ago, uh, maybe over 10 years ago, there were a lot of fires in old buildings where people had illegal extensions or illegal mezzanine floors with a lot of load, a lot of, and the power which was being drawn due to multiple air conditioning units, etc., was higher. So I think uh, these kind of things, uh, we need to see that not apart from having like a safety code uh, in construction, uh, we actually implement it, right? And uh, so maybe hundreds of such other fires are prevented before them actually happening. Or even if the fire happens, we do not lose 27 uh, people who died like this. Uh, if there were like say fire extinguishers on designated parts in every floor, etc., and there's like a fire uh, safety thing, uh, that would be quite useful. So I think definitely we need a rethink and uh, hopefully we learn from this tragedy. This uh, tragedy, obviously we cannot turn time back and uh, uh, not have it, but now that it has happened, learn from it and prevent maybe hundreds of such tragedies happening in the future. Yeah. No, city infrastructure, I think across India has a sad state of affairs, right? I mean, I can yeah. perhaps think of few exceptions, maybe Hyderabad, uh, right? And the two in parts. Um, and with people moving to cities, more and more people moving, I think it's going to just, you know, uh, be a lot more of a stress. And seriously, I mean, there, there needs to be some kind of a policy rethink, I feel, because uh, oftentimes the development authority itself is perhaps one of the most corrupt, uh, you know, uh, agencies uh, in the in the state uh, machinery itself, right? So, um, I mean, I, I sometimes, I mean, I'm shocked by how appalling things are in uh, Bangalore, you know, I mean, uh, there's, there's, there's nothing called floor space index, nothing of that sort, right? I mean, you have people building four floors, five floors on a 20, 30 or 30, 40 piece of land. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I just shudder to think what will happen. Yeah. All right. Uh, in some tra tragic news, uh, Australian cricketer Andrew Simmons has died in a car crash. Uh, Police released a statement uh, saying that they were investigating a fatal single vehicle crash in Hervey Range, Australia. Police and cricket sources confirmed the former international cricketer had died. He was 46. The cause of the crash was still being investigated, but at this stage, there was nothing to suggest alcohol was a factor in the crash. Simons was out of the vehicle or had been ejected during the crash and was being treated beside the car uh, by paramedics when police arrived. The death of Simons continues a devastating year for Australian cricket following the recent passing of legends Rod Marsh and Shane Vaughan from heart attacks. Um, Abhishek, this is pretty sad, right? I mean, you know, for those of us who remember the invincible Aussie team of the 2000s, uh, Simons was quite a character. I mean, he was an explosive batsman, um, somewhat useful bowler and a terrific fielder. Uh, all around, I mean, I think he was an, a fantastic entertainer, I would say, right? Yeah, it's such a sad news uh, to get on a Sunday morning. And as you said, uh, the trend of uh, Aussie cricketers passing away continues. Uh, I think you, I, the entertainer word is probably the best 
way to describe Simon, right? Like for a, uh, he was such a dashing and hard hitting batsman, right? Like yeah. even if he stuck around for half an hour, he will definitely give you some superb entertainment uh, as a batsman. And then uh, he could bowl seam, he could bowl spin. So he was one of those unique people, right? Like, like you, you rarely get people like that. Like Tendulkar, for example, was one, right? He could bowl a bit of medium pace. He could bowl a bit of spin. So uh, kind of a pure natural talent, right? Which you pick up from the, as a kid. And that continues through your uh, international days. So yeah, uh, and obviously as a fielder, he was probably among the top three fielders in the world when he was playing, right? Absolutely brilliant and athletic. And his yeah. background story is also pretty interesting, right? He was uh, born in England to uh, uh, parents from different countries. Like one of his parents was Caribbean, the other European. Then he grew up in Australia. He had a chance to play for either country, I think England and Australia. And he finally chose to play for Australia because that's where most of his family and friends were. And so he felt more loyal to Australia. And then it took some time for him to sort of uh, make an impact. But uh, he really had a big impact in two World Cup wins, right? That is 2003 and 2007. He was, and during those days, he was like one of the best players in the world. I think his bigger sort of descent started in that infamous Sydney test. Uh, which became controversial. I think people forget that he scored a brilliant 100 in that one as well. But that test is marred with controversy about uh, the uh, sort of spat that happened with uh, Harbhajan Singh uh, and then Simon Zayden, etc. So he kind of felt pretty betrayed by everyone uh, as he uh, went to court and, you know, his sort of point of view was not taken or, you know, considered as the truth. So whatever the case, I think he sort of uh, went into a bit of a downward spiral after that. Uh, But then he sort of, he was back in the IPL uh, and he played a major role in the initial years of IPL as well. Right. So, and he actually uh, uh, befriended many Indian players of that uh, newer generation as well. So, I was listening to uh, uh, an interview of Chahal recently and he was telling how Andrew Simons had sort of become a friend and mentor for him. You know, someone he actually speaks very regularly, almost on a daily basis. So that's kind of quite, uh, it was quite a good story to listen to, right? Someone like Simons to choosing to be a mentor of a, an Indian player, uh, despite, you know, what had happened with the Indian team in the past. Right. So, yeah, it's a, quite a tragic loss uh, for the cricket cricket fans around the world yeah. and especially Australian uh, fans. Yeah. On a side note, I mean, I think that is the tremendous value that IPL brings, right? I mean, yeah. the fact that, uh, you know, all these young kids uh, get mentored by the best of the best uh, in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, Simon's, you know, for... Uh, you know, these cricketing memories, actually, they just, they just take you back in time, right? I mean, you can kind of see, smell, breathe the the air that uh, was there around that time. 
um simons was was special you know i mean uh, uh, my memory is of him clearing the ropes like significantly like i don't think there's a single six of his that didn't clear like uh, you know the boundary by about 5 uh, 10 meters or or perhaps more right uh, because the guy was built like a giant i mean look at his forearms right i mean huge forearms um yeah fantastic uh, cricketer and uh, my favorite story of him is uh, him and matthew hayden and another friend going on a fishing expedition um off the coast the boat sinks uh, and the three of them swim back right i mean they swim for about 3 hours in shark infested uh, waters to make it to an island right i mean that just that's just the uh, you know that's the perfect story that uh, tells you about the tenacity the grit the perseverance and just the sheer um you know power that the man had uh, right so very very tragic i would say yeah absolutely absolutely as in uh, you all have covered almost everything what i wanted to say uh, but like i'll just put it this way that uh, simons is one of those cricketers where the stats don't do justice yeah. to the kind of talent right you you would not like think oh he's like an all time great probably actually does make it to the australian all time one day team right yeah uh, but watching him was so entertaining uh like if i have just had to add one thing my favorite innings of his was so 2003 world cup he made 140 versus pakistan yeah. after like two wickets had fallen cheaply right so i think uh we can talk a lot more about him he's a great cricketer it's a very tragic thing passed yeah. away just at 52 but 46 uh, yeah. 56 yeah 46 uh, 46 yeah very young yeah and he, yeah he was like active in cricket till like uh, for deccan charges i think he mentored rohit sharma as well and uh i think the descent started at that sydney test and there was like a lot of friction in the australian dressing room and uh, he recently on a podcast mentioned that there are a few people jealous of his ipl contract which is 2 million dollars for the season and uh, so there was a little bit of friction there and there kind of he got dropped and uh, unfortunately couldn't make it back to the australian team but definitely as in as a cricketer was one of the most entertaining people to watch batting bowling yeah. fielding everything he was always in the thick of things yeah no and uh, um yeah i mean it's it's just really sad the guy had an opportunity to play, play for england actually sooner than uh, yeah. australia you do a couple uh, of years to actually yeah. you play for australia and like make it through the shield and uh, take it from there but yeah. yeah pretty amazing um all right um so next week we have a couple of interesting episodes uh, coming up we have alexander stubb who's the former prime minister of finland yes you heard that correctly is a former prime minister of finland Uh, appearing on bharat vartha with velina chakrova this is part of the velina stock series uh, and they will be talking specifically about finland's path to nato membership and considering everything that's happened with russia ukraine all of the uh, stuff right i mean you can expect uh, you know some really good insights on on this one right um, uh, with alexander uh, we also have this other episode um, which is a translation of the zafarnama by author uh, wing commander vijay chatur Uh, right he spoke to ami ganatra uh, who we've hosted on the podcast uh, plenty of times before and uh, this should be an interesting conversation to check out as well uh, so yeah a couple of very good episodes uh, you know share subscribe uh, do all of the all of the good things rate review on podcast platforms etc uh, we're producing some high quality content and uh, yeah thank you again for joining us uh, this week we'll look forward to seeing you next week uh, until then stay safe take care and jai hind thank you